Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're completing our series, The Unseen Hand of God, today with a message entitled, Completing God's Assignment. So turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 46, verses 26 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've always loved completing a project. I know it's a great deal of fun starting projects, but completion, well, that brings a satisfaction that just can't be beat. And did you know that as we grow in Christ, there can be a sense of a lifetime project, that is, the calling that God has placed upon an individual life, the sense of having an assignment from God. Often that's related to our work and our faith and the combination of the two. You know, I'm honored here at Back to the Bible to have the privilege of looking back and remembering a great Bible teacher, Warren Wiersbe. You know, years ago, I had a class with Warren, and I remember that he said that he wouldn't teach at a seminary level much longer. And the reason, he wanted to complete his B series, you know, something he believed that God had called him to complete before he died. And by God's grace, he was able to do just that. He he felt he had an assignment. So listen to the words of the Apostle Paul right near the end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Or listen to the words of our Lord and Savior recorded in John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Look, I know that Jesus' case is unique and that his life really can't be replicated. You know, his mission was to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, and Paul... Well, his role was to lay the foundation of the Gentile church, and that's what he did. He was, in his own words, a skilled master builder. But it is also true that God does assign his servants their unique task, and it's also true that it is possible to say, I have completed the work that you have called me to do. It's possible to move to death with the assurance that we have fulfilled our life's assignment, that the task is done. And it is this attitude of serving our great king that that takes away the fear of death. Life is no longer a disappointment. And what I mean is that, you know, there are a great many people who have no goals, and there are even more who have their own manufactured life goals, their self-goals and things that they want to accomplish for themselves. And then, of course, there are those who, who have been what's called, you know, they've got a bucket list, things they like to do before they die. You know, like I'd like to go parachuting or scuba diving or visiting at least 100 countries, that kind of a thing. But for all of that, it's of little importance. And as Moses has said in Psalm 90, verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Where Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 7 to 8, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. See, when we chart our own course in life, death suddenly comes upon us and this life ends far too quickly and there's a deep sense of failing to have done that which our Creator made us for. And we have no sense of an assignment. It's disappointing and life becomes a cul-de-sac, a dead end, and an interesting story, sure enough, but the end leads to nowhere. Genesis 46 is not the end of the story of Genesis. You know, Jacob, even though he announces that he's ready to die in this chapter, 
will still live another 17 years. And there are things in the last four chapters of this amazing book that must be completed. But there's a wonderful sense in which Jacob, now in Genesis chapter 46, can look back to his life and feel a deep sense of completion. And might I say that what we learn in this passage can give great assurance to all who are following the leading of God and who are also noticing that the years are slipping by and that this life's road is coming to an end. You see, it's not about how long we live. It's rather that we can say, I have done that which my heavenly Father has called me to do. I've run the race. I have finished the course. Well, now, let's begin our text. I'll start with Genesis 46, verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons in the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. By the way, a little aside here, and some of you might be aware that in Act 7, which is Stephen's speech just before his martyrdom, he there makes the claim that in Jacob's family there were 75 and not 70. And furthermore, there's a slight variance to the lists that are found both in the book of Numbers and the one found in First Chronicles. So let's just say that there are very adequate and enlightening explanations for this, but a sermon on Genesis is not the place to discuss that. I would therefore encourage you to pick up a helpful little book called When Critics Ask, the big book on Bible difficulties. It's written by Geisler and Howe. Or you can pick up others like it, and they'll steer you in the right direction and give you great help when you come to some of these matters like this in the Bible. Well, enough about that matter. Let's move on. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Now, you might remember that Jacob had heard his son Joseph is still alive, that he is Lord of Egypt, and that God has given Joseph a role to play. That role is to rescue the family of Israel from poverty and death. But still Jacob, the man who has had both sins and failures, even so is still a man of faith. And so as he comes to the border of Canaan, as he's about to leave the country, journey towards Egypt, he must stop and seek God. Is this really what God has called him to do? And God comes to him and reassures him, This is my plan for you. Take your entire family and go to Egypt. And so he arrives in Goshen, and as he does, he calls Judah and sends him to go to Joseph. And that does seem significant because, as you'll remember if you followed this series, it was Judah who had played the lead role in separating father and son. And now, because of the grace of God and because of God's redeeming work in his life, we find that it will be Judah who will play the lead role in reuniting father and son. Well, God's like that, you know. Our sins may define us for a time, but for everyone who hopes in Christ, it is eventually his grace and his redemption and his new role in our lives that will eventually define us. And so at this historic moment in the life of the family of Israel, it is Judah, Judah the sinner, who is given the privilege of traveling to Joseph who is given the privilege of telling him, your dad is now in the country. Go to him. He longs for you with all his heart. Verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. See, I want you to think about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. 
In the parable, we're told that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And now we get a sense of how the father longed for the son. And then as Jesus told the story, the father ran to the son. And anyone hearing that story in that day would have been quite surprised. Fathers, because of the dignity of their age, didn't run. Youngsters did that. Fathers walked, but not this one. He was so overwhelmed with longing for his son that he threw convention right out the window and hiked up his cloak and just ran as fast as he could go. It was astonishing to see such longing and passion. But that's what we find in this account here. Joseph is the second most important official in Egypt. He doesn't go to people. They come to him. Now, it would have been common for people to be left waiting to see him when it was his convenience. Now, the idea of preparing his chariot and racing out to meet someone, it was virtually unheard of. But Joseph isn't acting like a great man in Egypt. He's acting like a son who longs for his father. And so you have to imagine racing his chariot across the land, heart aching until he finds him. You know, I notice in our account that there is no reference to the words they say to each other. They simply fall into each other's arms and Joseph weeps. There would be time later. For now, they simply need to be in touch with each other. They need to weep in each other's presence. That's enough. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now, we've been talking about completing God's assignment When finally, after much weeping, Jacob eventually does speak, his words sound very much like that of another old man, and this man's name was Simeon. You remember in Luke chapter 2, Simeon was a spirit-filled, devout man who had been longing for the fulfillment of God's promises for the people of Israel. Indeed, Luke tells us that God had shown him that in his day, he would live to see the Messiah. And so on a certain day when Mary and Joseph came into the temple to present the baby Jesus for the rite of ritual purification, Simeon is moved by God. And Luke chapter 2, verses 28 to 30 says, He took up his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That is, I see my life's purpose having been completed. I am satisfied with my life and I'm ready to die. Psalms of the Seasons, our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada calendar, reminds us of many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of creation and the beauty of God's Word. It provides a uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld, and there's no better way to start the new year than a commitment to read God's Word cover to cover. Now, the calendar is limited, so it's only available as quantities last. So reach out today to ensure you get your copy of Psalms of the Seasons. This calendar is filled with encouragement, beautiful pictures, the Bible reading guide, and it's yours for free while supplies last. So to request your copy and perhaps consider a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to order your calendar today. Now we might ask why it is that when Jacob sees his son, he says that he's prepared to die. So why doesn't he just say, I want to make up for all those lost years. I want to live a long time yet. 
Why does he now say that his life's race has been run? See, I think to answer that, we need to go back to a much earlier time in his life when he was so very much younger. Jacob, if you'll recall, had cheated his brother out of his inheritance and in the process had fled to his uncle Laban. There, through a series of events, Jacob found Laban to be a man who is as much a cheat as he was. And those events profoundly humbled him and brought him eventually to the place of repentance. And then as Jacob is moving back to Canaan to be reunited with his father, he is told that his offended brother Esau is coming out to meet him with no less than 400 armed fighting men. And at that time, Jacob was paralyzed with fear. And Jacob sent his family ahead and he spent the night at the Jabbok River. A man appeared to him and Jacob wrestled with that man. And in the end of the wrestling match, he's utterly exhausted, but he's hanging on to the man. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And there the man blessed him and changed his name to Israel. And with that, Israel is given his life's mission. He is the inheritor of the Abrahamic blessing, and his family is the foundation of the nation of God's people. And in the end, Jacob comes to a realization. You know, Genesis 32 verse 30 records him as saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was delivered. See, he can hardly believe it. He was wrestling with God himself, and in grace, God had allowed him to live. Indeed, it was out of this wrestling with God that Jacob finally saw who he was and what God had called him to do. That face-to-face encounter with God gave him something to live for. But over the years, it seemed as if the promise was coming to nothing. It seemed as if Joseph had died, and it seemed as if the rest of the family was falling apart. But then in an amazing turn of events, after so many years of mistakes and sins and so much sorrow and weeping, the sons of Jacob come home with Egyptian wagons and they say, Joseph, your son is alive. And now as as the two of them, Israel and his son Joseph, hold on to each other and allow the, the tears to flow so freely, Jacob realizes that God has fulfilled all his promises. His family will be preserved. They will become the very great nation that God has promised. And looking at Joseph, he says, I can die with great peace. He could say with Simeon, my eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. My life's purpose is complete. I'm satisfied in God, and therefore I can be satisfied in my death. You know, as I've said, Jacob doesn't yet know that there's more for him to do because there is still another 17 years of life for him. But if we get distracted now with that reality, we're going to miss something very important. Jacob is saying, I once saw God face to face, and I have now seen that God has kept all his words, and I can die in peace. Now to verses 31 and 32. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have had. You know, Jacob's emotional statements are now interrupted by some very practical concerns. It was necessary that that Pharaoh be kept abreast of the situation as it was developing. And furthermore, Pharaoh has promised to secure the best farmland for Israel. And so Joseph wants to move very quickly now to make sure these arrangements are made without any hiccups. But he also knows that there's this small matter of the occupation of his family. Joseph is going to have to stick handle his way through I guess it's a a difficult problem. But Joseph has no desire to keep Pharaoh in the dark about what's happening. 
Pharaoh must know that this family has come to settle down. They've come to farm the land, and they intend to stay a very long period of time. This is a permanent move, and they have come with their sheep. Now, this little paragraph tells us again why it is that Pharaoh had every reason to trust Joseph implicitly. Joseph kept no secrets from Pharaoh, who his family was, how long they intended to stay, what land was needed, and all that needed to be clearly understood. And furthermore, adding that little feature about his family being shepherds would let Pharaoh know that the family had no desire to integrate into Egyptian cultural life. The fact that this was acceptable to Pharaoh, well, that's a testament to just how much goodwill there had been between them from the beginning. There was a clear understanding of how this experiment was to function so that down the road, no one would feel that they'd been wrongly informed. Joseph was, like always, doing his job thoroughly. Pharaoh knew what was on Joseph's mind. Now, verses 33 to 34, Joseph knows that his family will have to appear before Pharaoh, and that in itself will require a bit of tact. And so he tells them what to say. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, you've got to wonder about this because Joseph has been very open with Pharaoh about that complicated and very delicate problem of that sheep thing. But one has to imagine that the audience that the brothers would have before the king of Egypt would have been attended by all the wise men and the counselors and the men of power that surrounded his throne. So at this juncture, just a bit of tact would have been required. Don't mention the sheep, he says. It's enough that you mention that you're interested in livestock and leave it at that. Pharaoh is going to understand. Now, we, for our part, might wonder why Joseph didn't change his family's business. Let's say he changed their business from sheep to cattle. And I think the answer to that is almost certain. The more his family feels distinct from the Egyptians, the more likely they are to remember the covenant that they've made with Abraham. And the more likely they are to remember that they are a distinct people a people specially set apart for God's own purposes, know the sheep would ensure this separation. And of course, if we, the modern reader, read this, and we're especially astute, we're also going to remember another reason why this was important. That is, don't give up on the sheep. Years later, in fact, 430 years later, the Israelites would, according to the command of Moses, each family would take a lamb from the flock. It had to be a very good lamb, and it had to be without a single blemish, No abnormalities, never a single bone broken. And then on that very sacred night at twilight, every single family would slaughter that prized lamb. And then they'd drain the blood from the lamb and take the blood and brush it onto the doorposts of every single one of their houses and also on the lintels of their houses. And then on that night, the angel of death would come into the nation of Egypt And he would kill every firstborn in every house, except for those houses that had the blood of a perfectly slaughtered lamb painted on the doorway. It was the night of God's deliverance. God's angel of death had passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb. It was Passover. And of course, some 1,500 years later, on the eve of another Passover, Jesus the Messiah, 
the man that Isaiah described as like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living, and yet the blood of that lamb, the lamb of Jesus, that lamb that was slain has resulted in the angel of death passing over all who believe. No, the sheep would remain so that God's purposes would be fulfilled. But these were matters that were so far into the future. For Jacob, as he arrived in Egypt and saw God's purposes being unfolded, he came to recognize that he had played out the purpose of God in his life. His work was nearing an end and his heart was at peace. No one chooses his or her assignment from God. Those matters are determined by the great and wise and all-knowing God. But it is enough for us that we should recognize that there has always been God's great unseen hand moving all things for his glory. My dear listener, Genesis is the foundation for your faith. But it also reminds each one of us that God has prepared for all of his children a role that he calls us to play in his great economy. So let's take heart from the story of God's sure hand. Let's watch as he moves all things for his purposes. Let's also remember that in his great mercy, he has not only brought us salvation, but he has allowed us to be actors on his stage. And let's be genuinely thankful that God has called us to play a role in his plans. So read the book of Genesis and do not fear to grasp a hold of God's assignment for you until that day when he calls you home, that day when you sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worship before the feet of Jesus. John, as we wrap up this great series, let me ask you a question about purpose. I mean, obviously, uh, Joseph has a great purpose in his life, and it comes to a conclusion. Uh, But do we have purpose as well? Yeah, I, I think it's very important for us to say that every single individual, man or woman, who has been called by God, has been called by God to fulfill God's purpose in their life throughout their days. Um, what, you know, what happens after we're gone? God will raise up other people to fulfill their purpose in life after we're gone. But it is important for us to get a deep sense that God has something that he wants me to do. Now, sometimes, I mean, we know that those, you know, that purpose can come to an end far quicker than we had imagined. Nonetheless, there's something wonderfully satisfying to know that I am living for a purpose, and every day I'm about the work that the Father has assigned to me. Now, give yourself to that kind of stuff, and you can go, as I've said, you know, to the later years of your life, not fearing death, but looking back with a deep sense of satisfaction. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for joining us this week. Remember to join us again on Monday right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise 
is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.